Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We'll have a nursery that you guys can give to John chapter 2 as well. The rest of you can open your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Many of you are probably not overly familiar with Israel's history between the closing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Scholars call that 400 years of silence where God did not speak and no scripture was written. So we have this 400-year period between the, the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament, but there was one event in Israel's history that was very, very important, and, and it's still celebrated today by the Jewish people. After the death of Alexander the Great, that Greek general, the nation was split up into four different smaller nations. And Syria was ruled by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes chose the name Epiphanes, which means, look at me, I am God. And here's what Antiochus Epiphanes did in 170 B.C. He began a three-and-a-half-year intense persecution of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. It started with the assassination of the high priest. During his reign, he marched into the temple in Jerusalem. And he stole all of the treasures. He stole all of the jewels. He stole all of the, the riches that were in the temple. And it's estimated that during this three-and-a-half-year period of slaughter, he killed 80,000 Jews, men, women, children, boys and girls, and historians even tell us that infants were murdered. He found copies of the Bible and burned them as a way to show his disdain for God. But here's the one thing that he did when he marched into the temple, the, the Jewish temple. He erected an altar to Zeus and sacrificed a pig on the temple in Jerusalem. Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, there was an uprising against Antiochus Epiphanes by some Jewish men. There was a man named Mattathias. He was a priest. He had five sons. One of his sons was named Judas. Judas the Hammer. Judas Maccabees. Under the leadership of Judas the Hammer or Judas Maccabees, there was what was called the Maccabean Revolt. And the Maccabean Revolt went in and actually ousted Antiochus Epiphanes, beat him on the field of battle, and in 163, Antiochus Epiphanes died of insanity because he knew he had lost against the Maccabean uprising. 
the Maccabean revolt, Judas Maccabees. The Jews instituted the Feast of Dedication. We call it Hanukkah. The Feast of Dedication was an eight-day ceremony to commemorate Judas Maccabees coming in, ousting Antiochus Epiphanes, and re-cleansing, rededicating the temple to the Lord. So it was an eight-day festival where they would light menorahs in their homes, and they would light menorahs in the temple as a way to commemorate the deliverance by this powerful ruler, Judas Maccabees, and how they had a hundred years of freedom, a hundred years of peace, And as they lit those candles at Hanukkah, they're looking in anticipation to a future Messiah who would come like Judas Maccabees, Judas the Hammer, and liberate Israel out of Roman occupation and bring back that day where the king would sit on the throne and there would be peace in the land, a future king, a future deliverer. Now, the Feast of Dedication during Jesus' time was held in the winter. Hanukkah today is held in the winter. And John tells us that it was in the winter. But it's a metaphor, it's a backdrop. What do we experience at wintertime? It's cold, right? How will the reception of Jesus be to these Pharisees? They will treat him with ice-cold receptivity at the Feast of Dedication. So the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, is the backdrop for our text this morning. It's very important to know that history. A deliverer comes, liberates God's people, cleanses the temple, and the Jewish people are waiting for this Messiah to come and liberate them. And Jesus shows up on the scene at the Feast of Dedication. So let's read together John chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. And this is a little bit different in time, probably three months after where Jesus was earlier when he was talking about I am the good shepherd. It's now moved into the winter time at the Feast of Dedication. So here we go. Pick up in verse 22. At the time of the Feast of Dedication that was taking place in Jerusalem, it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Just go to verse 31. The Jews picked up stones to stone him again. It's winter time. It's Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. Jesus goes into Solomon's colonnade, probably because it's warmer in there. It's out of the elements. And it says the Jews encircled him. Literally in the Greek text, they encircled him. They surrounded him. They wanted to, to trap him. They wanted to get some information from Jesus. And they ask him the ultimate question. 
Now, this is the question that every good Jew would have been asking during Hanukkah, during the Feast of Dedication. What's the question everybody's asking? Is this the Messiah? We're lighting candles in honor of of waiting for the Messiah. Could Jesus be the Messiah? Is he the Christ? Is our deliverer here on the stage? And that's exactly what they ask him in verse 24. The Jews gathered around him, and they said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us plainly. We want to know, are you the deliverer? Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Are you the Christ? And Jesus says, I've told you plainly. I've been doing miracle after miracle, and you're not believing. You're not believing in my name. You're not believing my works. What had he just done a few months ago? He had healed a man that was born blind. He's done amazing things in the Gospel of John. He's turned water into wine. He's healed a man that was an invalid for many years. He has turned uh, the the, the feeding of the 5,000, the loaves and the fishes. He's done all of these great miracles, but they're not believing him. They're not willing to accept that he truly is the Messiah. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Everything I'm doing shows you that I am the Messiah. But look at verse 26. It's very telling. You do not believe. Why are they not believing? Because you're not among my sheep. Now, what did we look at last week? What do sheep do when the shepherd calls them? The sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. They're not sheep. They're not hearing the voice of the shepherd. They're not believing. They're not among his flock. They're evidencing that they're goats. It goes back to what Jesus said earlier in John 8, 47, to the same group of people a few, few months earlier. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the shepherd Messiah. He's the shepherd of the sheep, but he's also the Messiah. He's the one that's come to deliver. So when you think about it, Jesus is the fulfillment of Hanukkah. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Feast of Dedication. What are they doing at the Feast of Dedication? They are waiting for a deliverer to come like Judas Maccabees to cleanse the people, to renew the people, to liberate the people. And what has Jesus done? He's come as the ultimate ruler, as the ultimate king to liberate and free his people. He's the shepherd Messiah. He's the shepherd of the sheep, but he's also the Messiah that's come to liberate his people. So here's the main point of this section where Jesus fulfills the Feast of Dedication. It's simply this. Jesus, as the Messiah shepherd, powerfully saves and secures his sheep. He's going to powerfully save us. And not only is he going to save us, but he's going to secure us. Now, how does he do that? How is the shepherd Messiah going to do that? What we see in this passage of Scripture are four essential teachings about salvation. Four essential teachings about salvation. Now, theologians call this the order of salvation. The order of salvation. Now, when we think of salvation, uh, there's a big umbrella. Salvation, we speak in the big terms of, of salvation. But under this big umbrella, the Bible speaks of different aspects 
different order, different ways in which God actually saves us under the big umbrella of salvation. And Jesus teaches those here before us. He teaches us basically an order, if you will, of how God saves us. And what we're going to see is not only does Jesus teach that here in John chapter 10, but it's corroborated, it's, 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 it's evidenced throughout the rest of the New Testament. So what are these essential elements of our salvation? What comes first in the order? Well, God planned your salvation long ago. Long ago, before you were ever born, before you were even thought of, in eternity past, God planned your salvation. So here's teaching number one, truth number one. Jesus sovereignly knows his sheep whom have been given him by the Father. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time at first here looking at verse 27 because verse 27 shares a lot of truths. My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. Remember last year, Jesus knows the sheep. Jesus owns the sheep. The sheep belong to Jesus. They are his. If you're a sheep, you belong to Jesus. Now the question then is, how did you get to become a sheep? What happened to enable you to become a sheep? Well, Jesus tells us, the Father gave you to Jesus as a sheep. Look down there in verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. The Father has given you to Jesus. Now the tense of the verb there is very important. It's in what we call the perfect tense. When Jesus says that the Father has given you The tense of the verb basically means this. There was a point in time where God gave you to Jesus and the effects of that continue on into the present to where you will always be given to the Father. So it's this whole idea of eternal security, this whole idea that you will always be given to the Father, and it started at a point in time. And so we've got to ask the question, when did this happen? When did this this point in time happen when the Father gave the sheep to Jesus? Well, Jesus has already addressed this in John chapter 6, verse 37. We've already seen this back during the bread of life discourse. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now, back in John chapter 6, Jesus just says all that the Father gives me. Here in John chapter 10, it says the sheep. The Father's given him the sheep. When did this happen? Well, it happened before the foundation of the earth. Ephesians chapter 1, 4 and 5 says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. When did God choose? When did God predestine? When did God elect? Before the earth was created, before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8 says this, All who dwell on the earth will worship it. It's talking about the beast there. All who dwell on the earth will worship it, the beast. Everyone's name who, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. Okay, this is the doctrine of election predestination. It's confusing. It's controversial. 
Some people tune me out when we talk about this. Some people get excited. Let me just, just say this. Regardless of what view you hold to, okay, there's two different views of, of election in the Bible that you can hold to. View number one says that you, look down, you believe that God looked down through the corridors of time and God saw who was going to choose him. And based upon what God saw, God chooses based upon seeing somebody choose him. That's called conditional election. If you believe that, or other people would say, no, God is sovereign. He didn't have to look down and see people choosing him. God simply chooses because God has the right to choose. Regardless of which view you hold to, what happened? Before the foundation of the world, God planned your salvation. He planned it out. Whichever view you hold to, God planned your salvation in a point in time before the foundation of the world. And now you may ask the question, well, why did God choose you? Why did God choose me? Why did God choose the Israelites? Deuteronomy 7, 6-8. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." A lot of people ask me this question, why did God choose me to be saved? And the answer I have is I have no earthly idea. Because God wanted to, and because God loves you, and because God said there's nothing in you that would move me to do it, I'm simply doing it because I love to do that. Now how do you respond to something like that? Well, you just fall on your knees and realize that I don't deserve any of this. Regardless of what view of, regardless of, what view of election you hold to, The bottom line is that God planned this before the foundation of the world, and none of us deserve salvation. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. He says this, quote, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself Why, he should have looked upon me with special love. We don't know why God did it. He planned it in eternity past because he loves the sheep. The Father has given Jesus the sheep. Jesus knows the sheep. But here's truth number two. The sheep will hear the voice of the shepherd. So in eternity past, God gave the sheep to Jesus, but there comes a point in time where the shepherd's going to call out to you. You're going to hear the voice. And as we saw last week, you're not going to listen to the voice of the stranger. You're going to hear the voice of the shepherd. You will hear the voice of the shepherd calling you. We call this effectual calling. And the reason why it's effectual is because it's effective. When Jesus calls to you, something happens. You respond. You hear the call. It creates this whole response for you to be able to come. You are granted saving faith. Now notice how Paul ties together calling and election together in Romans chapter 8 verses 28 through 30. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you see the two things together. God predestines, God calls. It just basically means in eternity past, God chose the sheep, and a point in time, God calls the sheep. Jesus says right here in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13-14. We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see both there. God chose you. God called you. 2 Timothy 1.9 God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God called us. When did that grace and that purpose of God happen? Before the ages began. 1 Peter 2.9 You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here's what happens when the shepherd calls you. He calls you out of darkness. He calls you out of sin. He calls you out of rebellion into his marvelous light. He calls you. He summons you. Now, I've given this illustration before, and it doesn't come from me. It comes from our friend Artaxerdia, who's preached here, and who's kind of a famous preacher around, around the country. But he says this, when you get an invitation in the mail to a party or to a wedding, you can politely decline the invitation because you have better things to do. I, I don't want to go to the party. I've got engage, you know, prior engagements. I'm going to politely refuse to answer the invitation. Okay. You get a jury summons. You call up a jury commissioner. You know, I've got something really better to do besides go up and show up for jury duty. Are you allowed to do that? No. When you get a jury summons, what's the response? You have to respond. Now, in the gospel, Jesus invites, come to me, all you who are weary. But he also calls and summons because he's the king. So here's the bottom line. When the shepherd Messiah calls you, It's a summons. And to not answer the call is really an act of defiance. So here's a question I have for you this morning. Is the shepherd calling you? Maybe you've been coming to this church for weeks upon weeks and you really don't understand what you're hearing, but all of a sudden you find yourself under deep conviction. You find that beating in your chest. You're not quite sure what's going on, but you know that there's something happening and the Savior's calling you. He's calling you to himself. What do you do when he calls? You respond. So there may be many here this morning that are not believers that the shepherd is calling you to himself right now. He's bringing that conviction of sin into your life. But here's truth number three. This is where the human responsibility comes into play. The sheep will follow the shepherd in repentance and faith. Look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and what do they do? They follow me. They follow me. 
So here's the progression. In eternity past, God chose you. At a point in time, Jesus called you, but you had to answer the call. You had to personally repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus as your Savior. You had to trust in Christ. We call this the doctrine of conversion. It's that point in time where you personally decided to follow Jesus. You repented and you believed. Now, what were the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he came preaching in the Gospel of Mark? Mark 1, 14 through 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You repent, you turn from your sins, and you believe in Jesus. How did Jesus say it in Luke's gospel? Luke 9, 23. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Remember when Paul and Silas were in jail in Philippi and the angel of the Lord came and basically there was the um, jailbreak and the, the Philippian jailer was a little freaked out and in Acts 16, 30-31, then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what was Paul's answer? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe. Paul says it in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So following Jesus means repenting and believing. So let's just ask a few questions because maybe there needs to be some clarification this morning. What is repentance? What does it mean to repent? It really means to change your mind about how you've been thinking But not just a change of mind, but a total change of life. Repentance means that you get to that point where you know you're a sinner. You know you've offended God. You know that your life is not where it needs to be before a holy God. And you make a decisive 180 degree turn from that sin. And you no longer walk in that sin. And you turn your back on that sin. And so here's the the picture. I've used this before. This whole wall back here is your life of sin. And so you're going towards sin. You're living in sin. You're embracing sin. You're loving sin. You're having a love affair with sin. When you repent, you turn from the sin. So you're turning from the sin, and as you turn from the sin, you're turning in faith towards Jesus. So it's a 180-degree turn. You turn from your sin, and you turn in faith to Jesus. And faith involves some things. Three things, if you will. First of all, you've got to have knowledge of who you're turning to. You've got to know who Jesus is. You've got to know the gospel. You've got to know what he did in his death, burial, and resurrection. You've got to know that you're a sinner. You've got to know some facts. So when you turn from sin and you turn towards Jesus, you've got to know who you're turning to and why you're turning. But that's not enough. A lot of people have head knowledge of who Jesus is. Secondly, you've got to have conviction. Conviction means, okay, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and I believe that he's the only way, and I believe I'm a sinner, and this is true for me. I'm fully convinced that if I don't repent and turn towards Jesus, I will die in my sins and go to hell. I need a Savior. But that's not enough. There's a lot of people that may come to that point. You actually, thirdly, have to fully trust in Jesus. 
Not only do you have to know who Jesus is, not only do you have to be convinced of who he is, but you've got to give your life to Jesus. That's what Jesus says here. Follow me. Give your total life to me. Embrace me. Trust me. So you repent from sin and you turn and place your faith in Jesus. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Have you done that this morning? Have you decided to follow Jesus? Have you repented of your sins and turned and trusted Christ in salvation with your whole life? Are you following Jesus? So here's the progression from first to last we've seen so far. God gave the sheep to Jesus in eternity past. At a point in time, Jesus calls to the sheep. And then you as a sheep hear the call and you respond and follow Jesus. But guess what happens? Here's the fourth truth. And this is really the meat of this passage. Truth number four. The Father and Son will sovereignly keep the sheep utterly and eternally secure. This is the doctrine of eternal security taught so powerfully in verses 28 and 29. We sang about it earlier, didn't we? In Christ alone, no power of hell, no scheme of man can what? Pluck me from his hand. Listen to the words of Jesus. Verse 28. I give them eternal life. Who gives us eternal life? Jesus. Can we earn this eternal life? Can we give ourselves eternal life? No, it's a gift of grace that Jesus has to give us. And when he gives us eternal life, is he going to somehow take it away from us? Is he going to renege on the promises of what he gives? No, because he goes on further and says, they will never perish. Never in the Greek language. That is the strongest way that it can be said in the Greek language. It's what we call a double negative. You could translate it this way. No, not ever, ever, ever perish. You will emphatically not ever perish. Now, what does perish mean? Perish doesn't just mean to cease to exist. When the Bible uses the term perish, it means to die and go to hell. It means to experience the pains of hell. You will never, if you are a true sheep of Jesus, he's given you eternal life. He's not going to renege on that. And you will never, no, not ever, perish by experiencing hell. Jesus will ensure that. He taught this back in John chapter 6, verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus is not going to lose you. Now you may think to yourself, what if I lose my salvation? What if somehow I sin beyond God's grasp? What if I do something so horrible that I fall out of God's good graces? What if, I, what if I just mess up here and there and God stops loving me? Notice what Jesus says in verse 20, 28. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Trivia question. Snatch. It's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians to talk about the rapture, a seizing up. No one's going to snatch you out of Jesus' hand. Why? 
Look at verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Why can't nobody snatch you out of Jesus' hand? Because the Father's great. And the Father has given you to Jesus. And the Father is powerful. And no one is able. No one has the power to snatch them out of whose hand? Notice there. No one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Isaiah 43, 13. Old Testament. God says, Also henceforth I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. I want you to see something here. We are in the double grip. No one can snatch you out of Jesus' hand. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. If somebody's going to come snatch you out of the hand, they got to go through Jesus and they got to go through the Father, and that is impossible. Nobody can grab you out of the double grip of a sovereign father and a sovereign son who will utterly and completely keep you saved to the end. What does Paul say in Romans 8, 35-39? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Let me just list some things, Paul. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure. What are you sure of, Paul? What are you persuaded of, Paul? Tell us, Paul, what you're sure of. I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation that you could even think of will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Underline it in your Bible. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 8-9. God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You were called into this. God chose you, God called you, you followed, and He's going to sustain you to the end. God is faithful to make sure you get to the end. Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What God started, he will finish. 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance. Will, Will Peter tell us what type of inheritance this is? It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It will not fade away. That sounds permanent to me. Where is this inheritance, Peter? Well, it's reserved in heaven for you. Okay, God's got it on reserve for you. How am I going to be ensured that I get it? Well, Peter says you're protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You want one more verse? Sure you do. I've got the microphone. Who's going to stop me? Jude 1, 24 through 25. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God is able to keep you from stumbling. 
Okay, so let's take all these passages together. No one can snatch you out of Jesus' hand or the Father's hand. No one can separate you from the love of God. What God started, he's going to complete. Christ is going to sustain you to the end. He's going to make you perfected to the end. He's going to keep you from stumbling. You've got heaven on reserve for you because you're being protected by God's power. How do you respond to this truth? You better praise God and rest in this. Oh, no, you never let go. God will never let you go. If you are a true child of God, you never need fear losing your salvation. God has you eternally secure in his grip. He will complete what he started. He will sustain you to the end. He will make sure you reach heaven. Now, does that mean it's always going to be a nice, easy path? There may be a lot of bumps along the road, but no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand and Jesus' hand, the double grip. Now, there's a climax to this passage of Scripture. Up to this point in the Gospel of John, this is probably the most emphatic statement that Jesus gives. There's probably two major declarations in the Gospel of John. This one right here, and then when Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished, this is what gets him in major trouble. Notice verse 30. I and the Father are one. Now, it's very interesting how John uses that word one in the Greek text. It protects theology, the way he uses that. It's a neuter. Now, you may think, well, that sounds kind of dangerous. No, neuter just means that there's no masculine or feminine. If he would have used it in the masculine, I and the Father are one masculine, it would mean that they were the same person, which is not true. Are the Father and Jesus the same person? No, they're two distinct persons, but they share the same oneness of it being God, and that's why he uses the neuter. See, here's the truth of the Trinity. We worship one God, one in essence, one in nature, one in substance, but three distinct persons. And both persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all share equality as God. Doesn't Deuteronomy 6, 4 say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, one God, not a bunch of different gods, one God, three distinct persons. This is how John started his entire gospel. John 1 1 through 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All John is doing is just basically teaching here what Jesus had talked publicly about. I and the Father are one. Not one in the same person, but one in the same essence, one in the same purpose, one in the same being. What Jesus is basically making a declaration here is that I am equal to God the Father. I am God in the flesh. There is no other God besides me. I'm standing before you. That's why they wanted to kill him. Now let me just ask you a question. Can anybody else on planet earth make the claim I and the Father are one? Let me give you some words from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. This is a quote that you need to know. You may have heard this quote. It's one of C.S. Lewis's famous quotes. I want to read it carefully because I think every Christian needs to hear this. This is a famous quote from C.S. Lewis about how Jesus can be so bold to make this claim. Here's his quote. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who said he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You cannot shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let not us come with patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems obvious to me that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. He's either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord. Because nobody makes the claims that Jesus can make without truly being Lord of all. He's either lying about the whole thing, he's either crazy, or he is who he says he is. So how do you respond to the Messiah shepherd? How do you respond to this king who's come at the Feast of of Dedication, Hanukkah, and presented himself as the true one that cleanses the temple and delivers his people, who's the shepherd Messiah? How do you respond to something like that? How do you respond to Jesus? I mean, you can really do nothing but worship him with joyful obedience. There's really no other choice but to worship Jesus with joyful obedience. Why? Because God planned your salvation way in eternity past. Why? Because the shepherd has called you by name. Why? Because you have repented and believed in Jesus and followed him. Why? Because no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand or out of the Son's hand. He is greater than all. And why? Because Jesus and the Father are one. Do you see your salvation from first to last? From eternity past to eternity future. Jesus sovereignly, securely saves you from first to last. And if God has such powerful love for you in doing that, then why wouldn't you want to worship him with joyful obedience? And what I mean by joyful obedience is this. Whatever the king tells you to do, you do it with joy. Wherever the king tells you to go, you go with joy. Whatever the king tells you to say, you say with joy. Because you can do nothing but to fall on your face before this shepherd Messiah and say, Jesus, I don't deserve this salvation. I could never have earn this salvation. I could never have died on the cross for myself. I could never in a million years come up with a plan to save me. All I know is that you're worthy of following. I've decided to follow Jesus and you will keep me secure to the end. And in light of that, I will worship you with joyful obedience every day of my life. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I just want to just say there may be some of you this morning that from time to time doubt your salvation. Maybe you have a tender conscience and you wonder if, if you've lost your salvation or if somehow you've, 
gotten out of God's good graces. And you just may be feeling under the burden of guilt right now that you've maybe sinned so bad that God could never forgive you. Would you just take this truth to heart this morning that if you're truly his, he will never leave or forsake you. No one can snatch you out of his hand. Would you just rest in that truth? For others of you this morning, you may not have even gotten into a relationship with Jesus yet, but you know he's calling. And every week you're, you're hearing the call, you're hearing the call, but you, you haven't repented and believed. Would today be the day that you repent and believe in Jesus? So however you need to respond this morning, I want to give you just a few moments before the Lord to pray and to engage Him as we continue to worship. So spend some time in prayer this morning for you today. And we are so grateful that you sent Jesus to die for our sins. That Jesus, you laid down your life for us. We could never pay you back. We could never earn your love. All we can do is receive it as a free gift of grace. Lord Jesus, if there are people here this morning that have never responded to your call, I just pray in the power of your name, Lord, that they would follow you. Today would be the day they stop playing games and they know deep in their heart that they need a Savior and they would hear the voice of the shepherd and they would follow you. They would repent and believe in you, Jesus. For the very first time. That they would have that assurance that their sins are forgiven and they're accepted by God Almighty because of what Christ has done. Lord, for those of us who have trusted you, would we rest in the truth that nothing can snatch us out of your hand? Father, when we feel guilty, when we feel weak, when we feel like we're barely hanging on, would you remind us it's not the strength of our grip? It's never the strength of our grip. It's always the strength of your grip. You've got us held tightly in your hand. And you'll never let us go. You'll sustain us to the end. You'll keep us from stumbling. You've got heaven on permanent reserve, unfaded and un, uh, unperishable in heaven for us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Lord, in light of these glorious truths, will we walk out of this place with joyful obedience to your Lordship? Would we just have a joy of the Lord as our strength? Would we experience the joy of our salvation? And would that lead to obedience? Not just talking about it, Lord, but doing it in every area of our lives for your glory and your glory alone. Thank you, Jesus, that the shepherd loves the sheep. You are our Messiah. You're our King. Thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.